Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Broadway Podcast Network presents Giants in the Sky, How Sondheim and Lapine Went into the Woods, with me, Ben Rimmelauer. Today's guest, James Lapine. Once upon a time. Once upon a time, Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine created a musical that ran for two years on Broadway, two years on tour, was broadcast on TV, and became a staple for stock and amateur groups. I directed it in college, and so did you. Or maybe you played Little Red, or the clarinet, or worked crew. My cousin Joshua played Cinderella's father at Irvine High. And now, almost 40 years later, there's been a blockbuster film from Walt Disney and several major New York revivals, including last season's City Center production, now on tour and nominated for six Tonys. Maybe because of the accessibility of its familiar fairy tale characters and milieu, or maybe because of the enduring legacy of the iconic original cast widely available on home video. Or maybe because composer lyricist Stephen Sondheim and book writer director James Lapine were master musical theater artists at the peak of their powers, Into the Woods, and especially its landmark original production, has occupied an increasingly important place in the pantheon of Broadway musicals. For many of us, the show has served as a sort of entree to Sondheim, to musicals, and to theater in general, a gateway drug, if you will, for millions of budding theater artists and fans. But for a piece so cherished by millennials and Zoomers and the occasional age-defying Gen Xer, <clears throat> the origins of Into the Woods, written pre-internet, remain somewhat shrouded in mystery. Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine did numerous interviews about the work over the years, often expounding in depth on their research into the psychological significance of fairy tales in human history and the rich musical tapestry of Sondheim's score. Yet, there's precious little information out there about the nuts and bolts of how the show came together. I guess you could say we've been missing the trees for the forest. Like its predecessor, the first Sondheim-Lapine collaboration, 1984's Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods began life in readings and a workshop at Playwrights Horizons. 
Sunday in the Park's Play Rights Horizons workshop led to a full production there, followed by a run on Broadway. But Into the Woods was in development for a few years, with the Playwrights Horizons presentations followed by a world premiere at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, and then more workshopping back in New York City, as its commercial producers prepared to present it on Broadway in the fall of 1987. Over the years, I've heard various tidbits about these pre-Broadway iterations of Into the Woods, like that there were other fairy tale characters incorporated into the story, such as Rumpelstiltskin and the Three Little Pigs, or that Tony Award winner Betty Buckley played the witch. But there's nearly zero mention anywhere online of Betty Buckley's association with Into the Woods beyond a scratchy snippet, audio only, on Aurora Spider-Woman's YouTube channel. The pre-Broadway production of Into the Woods at the Old Globe, with Ellen Foley as the witch, was covered in the press, so it's Googleable. But whatever went on in those readings and workshops happened effectively off the grid. In 2021, James Lapine published an indispensable tome on the making of Sunday in the Park with George called Putting It Together, which chronicles the step-by-step development of that show through excerpts from conversations he had with just about every artist and professional involved. It made me hunger for this type of granular play-by-play on Into the Woods. When I heard he wasn't planning such a book, the idea for this podcast was born. Come with me on this fairy tale quest to figure out how the musical we love came to exist in Giants in the Sky, how Sondheim and Lapine went into the woods. My guest is three-time Tony winner James Lapine. He wrote the books and directed the original productions of Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, and Passion, all with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. He shares with Sondheim the Pulitzer Prize for Sunday in the Park with George. His numerous other writing and or directing credits on and off Broadway and on film include Act One, Dirty Blonde, Twelve Dreams, Table Settings, and Impromptu, as well as the William Finn musicals Falsettos, A New Brain, and the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. A lot of our listenership is going to be uh, theater makers of all stripes. And um, my, I have so much curiosity about kind of like the nuts and bolts of you um, as a theater artist and you and Sondheim and everyone you work with at the beginning, creating this new show that is, you know, so um, influential and iconic to generations now and back on Broadway and all that and the movie. But but just back to that beginning when it was just the new show you were working on. I'd love to ask you some stuff about that. Yeah, I mean, we're talking how long ago? 35 years, <laughs> 40 years, something like that, you know? Uh, I, I'd like to say I remember it, you know, in all its exactitude, but I don't, um, let's see, we were coming off Sunday in the park and, uh, we, Steve wanted to work on another show. So we just got together and talked about things we were interested in. And when I had first met him, he was really getting into, uh, I guess they're called video games. I mean, I don't know what they were back then, you know, because the computers were kind of new yeah. and all of that. Uh, he, you know, it just kind of came up in the conversation and I was not that technologically savvy and I didn't have any interest in those games so much, but he liked the idea of a quest musical. Mm. 
people. You know, uh, the thing he likes about those um, games is they always had to uh, get something, you know, yeah. you set out to find something. I don't know. And I had mentioned my interest in fairy tales and uh, we kind of left it at that. And I went off to write an original fairy tale. So well, let me see if I come up with something I would sit down to write. Because Sunday sort of started that way too. It's just kind of see what's in your head. And um, I did spend some time writing an original fairy tale and I discovered that fairy tales are short. You know, they're not long. And when you try to make them long, they, they don't hold up in a way. They become something else. Because uh, the more I read fairy tales again as an adult, I realized they all turn on a dime and the resolution is very immediate and there's not much character development. They're, they're myths, you know, they're, they're quick myths. So um, somehow then it hit on the idea of this baker and the wife, which I think was the source of the original uh, idea I was working on. Mm -hmm. um, but if they needed something, wanted something, were after something, that would become the quest part. And that's when the idea hit about trying to do a mashup of all existing fairy tales, which are short, and uh, mix it plot-wise with that. And alongside of that was this notion of happily ever after, you know, which, uh, you know, the, historical idea of fairy tales, you know, they go back hundreds of years is even longer, is that they were there to give hope to people, mostly people who had nothing, you know, <laughs> peasants and what yeah. serfs and whatnot. And they would, you know, they were oral, they were sit by the fire at night, which was the only light they had. And they there would be someone, probably the elder person in the in the family who would tell these stories and it would give hope that a scullery maid could become a princess, you know, it's kind of the idea. At least Did you always have a narrator character in mind to be part of the storytelling? That's a good question. Uh, I don't remember. I think probably once I got into mashup mode, it became almost necessary to move move the plot along would be my guess. Mm. Uh, I mean, and then well, really what happened then was I, I wrote the first uh, opening scene, mm. which turned out to be all these different stories. And then I thought, oh, geez, this is, this, this is not the stuff of musicals, you know, but I gave it to Steve and I said to him, you know, I don't think there's any way you can make this an opening number, but this is what I've got, you know. And of course, in retrospect, if you want to get Steve to do something, can't, he can't do it. And then, <laughs> then, boy, it didn't take him that long to come back with what became the opening number of the show. And then once we had that, it was, um, we just, pl I just plotted along. We didn't have a plot, you know, I didn't outline a plot. Um, and was that when you did that, I know there was like a first reading at Playwrights Horizons. Was that of a, a version that included that or was it just book and no, no score? Mm, hard for me to remember. I know we had what I would call more of a workshop, like a little two week workshop presentation reading. Cause then we had songs. We had a fair number of songs for each of the characters. I don't believe it was like, 
you know, Sunday I wrote the whole book and then the music came. Right. Um, right. Yeah. This was uh, more in tandem one with the other. And uh, we were, um, I don't know, we were quite in sync by this point. You know, yeah. the first go around with Sunday, we didn't know each other very well. But now, having come off of that, we, we had a different kind of uh, relationship as writers to one to the other. And, sure. Uh, trust and etc. So yeah, and, and so that that workshop also was at Playwrights. Is that right? That was a two week. The one I'm thinking of was a two week yeah. workshop, and um, uh, that's when we ended up uh, going with Jude Jamson to produce it. Yeah, and is it right to assume that you had the Schubert's come calling after you just had a Pulitzer with Sunday? One would have thought, wouldn't one? Uh, <laughs> The Schubert's came to that reading too. And then my old friend, uh, Rocco Landisman, who I knew from when I was a graphic designer. And actually when I was a graphic designer, he's the one that hired me to come to Yale School of Drama to do graphic design. So he was not only a friend, I sort of owed him my interest in the theater by you know him doing that. And he and his wife, Heidi, who was a very good friend of mine also who I met there, Heidi Ettinger, Landisman, whatever. Uh, so they were there at the same time at this little presentation of the reading, as was Mike Nichols. Mm. And um, it was just the first act, as usual, and uh, Nichols wanted to produce it. Mm. And uh, Landisman wanted to produce it. And we hadn't heard from the Schuberts. You know, they never called us or, or in any way you know, uh, I don't think they loved it, you know, I don't know, but we never heard from them. And so, you know, it wasn't like we didn't want to do it with them, but the fact that they showed no interest, as far as we could tell, we just ended up going with Rocco because he was my pal. For the last time, I am not on Ozempic. I made one little joke on this podcast and everybody started calling me out, texting me, calling me cringe, whatever. I really was asked by people if I was on Ozempic, and as I told them, I am not. I am just eating factors, no prep, no mess meals, okay? Warmer, sunnier days are coming. Fire Island season is here. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine what are you waiting for with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week you'll always have new flavors to explore crush your wellness goals this may with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust from breakfast to dessert stay fueled with easy nutritious options treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon shrimp and blackened salmon and kitchen time is kept to a minimum they are ready in two minutes no shopping no prepping no cooking no cleanup enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories 
calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or just simply to eat well balanced. Head to factormeals.com slash giants in the sky 50 and use code giants in the sky 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code giants in the sky 50 at factormeals.com slash giants in the sky 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And was there any thought to doing it at production at playwrights like you had done with Sunday? All right, back up for one minute because the other thing is, um, uh, um, the Schuberts did come, were kind of shocked when they heard that we didn't go. I think oh. they just assumed. So, <laughs> so when we ended up doing Passion, it, you know, it was theirs before we even put pen to paper, mm. you know, so mm-hmm. just straighten that out. Uh, no, we went out of town. We went out of right. town to La Jolla. And was it La Jolla or Old Globe? Old Globe, yeah. Yeah. So, no, we didn't uh, do a workshop at Playwrights at that point. And was, I mean, I know that had become something that was more common by that point in the 80s and, you know, Big River and, and all that. Was was that just kind of business type thinking that led to that or um, was You're going it, to La Jolla, you mean? Uh, going yeah. to Old Globe? Uh, was it thought to be too big of a show for Playwrights Horizons or, or to be better to be no, aware? No, no, Playwrights Horizons was a developmental place. And particularly when we did, that is a huge glass. <laughs> I like a lot of Diet Pepsi. <laughs> See, whoa. Okay. Um, here's my coffee. You know, I have to very carefully sip it. Otherwise, I'll be like that, you know. Um, no, uh, you know, my allegiance was to playwrights because that's kind of where I grew up in, in the theater. Yeah. And, um, but by the time, I don't remember there being any discussion of doing... By that point, it would have been a whole other experience than we had on Sunday. Sure. It was, you couldn't hide, you know, if you remember when we did Sunday in that little workshop, which I naively thought was this little thing and nobody would know about it. Of course, it ended up being a, I think an arts and leisure article or something, you know, uh, I wasn't that aware of Sondheim's, you know, um, I guess fame. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we went out of town and um, fortunately it was a time when the the New York Times and others didn't come. They Mm -hmm. respected that. Yeah. Can't do that anymore. You know, you go out of town now, you might as well, it's just, you can't win. Yeah. Yeah. So we went out and um, trying to remember, we must have had readings and stuff prior to that. We wouldn't have just jumped out there. We certainly didn't have a second act. around that time that we did the first reading. I know we only did the first act. Yeah, I think if we had done the f- second act, people probably wouldn't have been so quick to come up to us with saying, we want to do this. <laughs> well, I mean, it's amazing how differently the second act plays even now. Just, I mean, my thoughts seeing the um, revival and, and I mean, especially on Broadway, but at City Center also was just the second act seems more reflective of the kind of apocalyptic state we've all been sort of living in and almost less dark or something. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, is a word I would use. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, what's interesting, I think, is um, I was kind of shocked. Well, I wasn't so shocked at encores because, you know, encores is encores, very enthusiastic 
audiences who know shows and mm -hmm. but when i went and saw the show a week or two ago and i hadn't seen it at saint the saint james mm. the fact that it's still that frenzied audience yeah. cheers as the lights go down i realized that 35 years a lot of these people um in the audience have a history with the show themselves really so, um and i think thematically i don't i don't know uh I think the times have caught up to that second act and so yeah. that's all. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, well, but... it, was, it was, it was, you know, it wasn't a fun time when we did it. Remember it was, we started it before the AIDS crisis, but the yeah. AIDS crisis sort of happened when we were doing that. And then when we did the revival, we were, had no plans for it to be anything apocalyptic. And then 9-11 happened. Uh, while we were in rehearsals. So, um, you know, it just seems like the show pops up. That <laughs> is hilarious. moments in our yeah. history. There, there's always, there are always wolves. There are always lies. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, uh, it's true. And I, I suppose that's true historically of all here, you know. All, but, all. but you were able to go to do that second act out of the eyes of the, the critics, the New York critics, at least, to go to San Diego. Yeah, yeah. And, and was, you know, I know that there was, uh, I, I guess Chip and Joanna were like involved kind of from uh, at least what I was able to find online that they were in that production. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think Chip was at the, I don't think Chip did that workshop, but he was uh, actually uh, trying to remember the name of the guy who did it, who I loved, who was the first, one of the first people I know who passed away from AIDS, but mm. um, yeah. But Chip certainly was in uh, the Old Globe and continued with it. And um, what I, I know, I mean, obviously there are things that changed um, in terms of the the actual story and the characters that probably necessitated casting changes. But were there other things that were more um, uh, about the casting that that shifted? I mean, I, I I remember I had known that Ellen Foley had played the witch. Yeah, Globe. But then I saw that she was also one of the final uh, replacement witches in the Broadway run. Um, and how how did that all evolve? Um, I don't think she was in the Broadway run ever. Um, oh, maybe maybe it was as an understudy or something. No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, well you know, Ellen is great, but Ellen had a very rock and roll voice, mm. which uh, didn't really suit what Steve had ended up continuing to write um but she she was very punk rocky at the time yeah know? and it was fun loaf, right well yeah, yeah. really fun person well you know that the, the show goes through many many incarnations of writing we had rapunzel uh was a character and the three little pigs and you know we had your whole melange of fairy tale characters running around it was just it was a very rich pie and uh, we ended up having to take some of the ingredients out, but it was pretty much a mess, you know, a beautiful mess. And we just kept cleaning it up and we never knew how to get rid of that damn baker's wife. Cause I had this vision that I wanted the show to end with a melding of, of, a fairy tale characters and a real character, you know. Mm -hmm. I always thought of the baker and the wife as being a contemporary character of mm -hmm. sorts. You know, they were our window into the world, and they strayed into the world of fairy tales. They weren't ever part of a fairy tale. So, uh, 
We have many, many versions, many, many versions. I don't know where they all are. I'm sure they're in the Sanhan files, you know. Oh, good. <laughs> good luck with that. That'll take you a few weeks to go through. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, well, you were starting to say that you had a vision for how the baker's wife would, would die initially. Well, I, I just wanted to get rid of her. <laughs> I just had this idea of Cinderella ending up with the baker. Ah. Just felt uh i guess because i we'd set out in the first act to create the fairy tale world i somehow wanted to bring the real world in in the second act and that when they got out of the woods there was a sense of normalcy mm. you know it's what cinderella's so great about you know she doesn't want to be a princess. She doesn't mind cleaning, you know. <laughs> it's okay, I enjoy cleaning, you know. That there's a kind of, um, that reality can be magical too. And, mm. and the simple the simple things that we do in life are actually very satisfying if we allow them to be, you know, rather than dreaming of being at the Met Ball or something, you know. Mm. And, um uh that that's so interesting i mean especially in the times of kind of apocalyptic type uh uh you know adversity yeah. that we appreciate those things yeah and and you know chip and joanna were basically new yorkers you know <laughs> yeah that was what was kind of fun about them even though they were in these fairy tale outfits they were always they had a kind of contemporary new yorky yeah <laughs> sensibility that was kind of fun and gave them something to play against mm. They went by these other wacky characters, you know. I mean, that incredible American Playhouse broadcast, it, it's so, you know, um, yeah. So, so many people grew up on that as not just their introduction to um, your work uh, with Sondheim, but even just musical theater at all. And, you know, we know those um, performances, not just the cast album, but, you know, all Joanna Gleason's line readings in the book scenes are so iconic now that you know it's 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 like I, it must be a tremendous liability for anybody playing the part to have to go against that i don't know you know i thought that was what was so uh really remarkable about sarah Bareilles, who mm. i whose work i didn't know and i had uh, as a composer or a singer let alone as an actor yeah and i thought um what was kind of fun about it was, of course, Joanna's brilliant. You know, there's no other one like Joanna who can nail nail things. But I also, as a book writer, felt kind of good that, you know, even with a very naturalistic and mm. uh, kind of take on it, the lines were all still very funny and and you know it worked. So yeah. it was uh, that was kind of cool uh, about that show. But you know that it's funny you bring up that recording because they would never let me record, you know, direct my own recordings. And on that one, I insisted I was going to direct it. But you know, in those days, um, it was not high tech. You had a certain number of tape machines that were running. Wow. And you had to call the cameras to which to tape because they didn't tape them all. At, uh, you know, it wasn't all taped. They didn't tape them all. They just ran. I guess I'm not saying that right. There was only one machine recording it. Wow. And if there were seven cameras, you had to say which camera they recorded live. 
So, do, do, so you had to storyboard it like a film in advance of the of the shooting? Is that the idea? Well, I guess so. But the thing was, I knew the show so well, I knew where the camera should be and what the line was coming up and who you wanted to be on, you know. And what they would do is bring in these video directors who I'm sure were great at live capture. But if you don't know the material, you don't know who it's supposed to be on. So, you know, for instance, if you look at the Sunday in the Park one, I was just not as good because uh, uh, it just wasn't as good. They brought in the guy who directed the Golden Girls. Right. Well, I thought that was the guy that was going right. to record the show. And he just shot it like, uh, same when they did my table system, they just shoot it like it's a live concert, you know, which mm -hmm. is not the same thing. Anyway. Well, I, I, I would love for you to film another uh, Sunday in the Park with George someday so we could see. <laughs> Have our have our, our our eyes controlled by Lapine. I have a movie version that never seems to be able to get off the ground, but that's what I would want to do. I wouldn't want to do a live. I'd, I'd love to do the film version of it. Which would I be love to see that. I won't give up uh, hope on so that. Would I, so would I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can I ask you more about casting? Because I know in terms of like Chip, you had worked with him in March of the Falsettos. Um, and that seems like such a clear trajectory. Had you known Joanna before? Had you seen her in other stuff? I had seen her in a couple of things. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know her. No, when we started. Um, she may have actually come in and auditioned. You'd have to ask her. I'm not that, sure. that must have been such a, lu a lucky day <laughs> when she was. <won. laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean, um, I, it's, as I said a long time ago, I don't remember exactly other than I knew that I had seen her and I can't remember what I'd seen her in a couple of things and thought she was just. Um, you know, sui generis. Yeah. So nobody really liked her. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, not the same could obviously be said about Bernadette, who you certainly worked with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I She wasn't the first, I keep thinking about looking at the poster behind you of Evita, but actually I'd asked Patty to play that part. H had you? Now, I because I there's rumors about that and then that she wanted to be Cinderella. I mean, is that is that just Patty Lapone concocting a, a, a story or is that real? No, no, that's true. I mean, she actually auditioned for Cinderella. She was great about it. She said, you know, I know you don't see it, but let me sing the song. And, um, and uh, it just really, you know, it's funny. I already had, I already had Cinderella in my mind as like a beauty pageant. Winner, yes. You know, yes. which in fact, Kim Crosby was a beauty pageant. Winner. Understandably. That, okay. So, cause Patty has said that she, first of all, I'm just imagining you and, um, I guess Sondheim and Gemignani like sitting there and Patty singing on the steps of the palace. Is that the, the scenario? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because then she also said that she auditioned to replace Bernadette in Sunday in the Park, but you guys did, didn't want her? I don't remember that at all. I guess, I guess it wasn't a memorable audition. But, but I, don't, I don't think that's the, I don't think that, I don't know why I A, wouldn't want her and B, I don't remember that. She tells some story that she she was, I guess, on the stage. Maybe it was in a in her audition studio, but that she was singing and 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 Sondheim came and said, "Too much belting, no belting, stop." But I don't remember that. That and then uh, okay, so then she she sang for Cinderella, but it wasn't the right fit. At, well, then you know how you know what that that's such a soprano. -y, oh yeah, uh, you know. Uh, Steve wrote it, he imagined it as being this kind of pure soprano. Yeah. Uh, and, and she has that, of course. Um, 
but uh, no, it just wasn't what I envisioned. And frankly, I thought she was too old for Cinderella. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so then, so then, so then, she was offered the witch. That's real. Oh yeah, I, I she was the first one I offered the witch to. The first, and then because and then the other thing she says is that um, uh, that she there I guess there was a negotiation broke down over I don't know what some kind of contractual points or something. But then Bernadette got everything that she couldn't no, get. No, none of that rings a bell. <laughs> I love it. Well, I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. Sure. sure. I, uh, the thing about it is, uh, you're talking about her replacing Bernadette, which no, I No, no, this is now for to be the witch, the original witch. Or Broadway, you mean? Yeah. No, well, originally it was, it was uh, going to be Betty Buckley. For Broadway. For Broadway, yeah. She was going to, she did the next workshop we did after, uh, after the Old Globe. Oh, wow. And had Ellen Foley done the first workshop before the Old Globe? You know, that's an interesting question. I don't remember who did the witch in the workshop. There's also on the, um, it's, unfortunately, it's not available now, but on one of the CD releases of the original cast album, there are some demo tracks with, um, John Karen Mitchell and singing Jack, uh, and then uh, Maureen Moore singing, I guess, Boom Crunch or whatever the earlier version of, of an act two witch song was. Gonna, right while I'm talking to you, email Chip and ask him who did, <laughs> you know. Uh, I offered Patty the workshop. The workshop, didn't work out with her. Because she wanted to play Cinderella and she went off to do, uh, she ended up doing Anything Goes. Oh, okay. Because I thought that was timed with the same time as Broadway, but maybe not the pre-production. Uh, no, I'm pretty sure it was the workshop yeah. that Patty that gotcha. Patty came in. Because we, I believe, kept the same Kim Crosby for both right. all the productions. Yes, yeah. right. I know she was in Old Globe. Okay, so then Betty got the offer. Betty did the workshop after the old globe. Betty did the workshop after, and for uh, you know a few reasons, it didn't really work out, and that's when we went to Bernadette. Because I, I guess the thing there was some book. Um, it's called Nothing Like a Dame, and it's like interviews with these different Broadway actress yeah. singers. And there's with the with Betty talks about. It, I guess in a way similar to what you're saying about the thing with Ellen Foley, that the vibe was very rock and roll, and that wasn't what she wanted which is so strange to someone hearing that now, because of course the witch has all this gorgeous music, you know, so. Yeah. Well, a lot of that music wasn't there at that point either. It wasn't in, in La Jolla. Um, so, I know, guess she hadn't read uh, putting uh, it together uh, yet. She didn't know that you, that, she, that you guys were gonna work and keep working. I mean, it seems like wouldn't her, uh, you know, I wish I could go back in time and advise her. Well, you know what, that's the way it works. And um, I love Betty. I would love to have seen Betty do it. She sang the shit out of it. And, um, and it was just part of the problem, uh, the challenge of it was that poor Betty was coming in after we had done La Jolla, mm. uh, you know, after we had done the old globe. So she was not originating the role so much. Mm. You know? And, uh, and we had a company that was pretty tight. So it was just a, a kind of sort of chemistry thing that sure. didn't, didn't play off. But I, I love Betty and I think she's fantastic. She is, yeah. Well, okay, so then how, how, how late in the process was it that Bernadette became involved? Um, I think she came and in, became involved as we were moving to Broadway, you know. 
So, cause I, I guess the legend about that is like, there was like a lunch, like right before rehearsal started. And well, she's told the story, like she begged for the part, but the legend I've heard was that she, it was like a last minute, like, you know, save us. We have to start rehearsals and we don't have a witch kind of thing. Neither, no. neither of those. Neither. <laughs> neither. Neither, no. Well, she's generous, I'm sure, also when she tells talks about begging. Yeah, yeah uh, Bernadette begging for a role. I'm yes, sorry. yes. Bernadette yes. has never had to beg for a role. No, for sure. No, it's a. It's not in her being, and <laughs> uh, it's not if she wants something. I'm sure she would be very forthcoming on that. But no, she's not a beggar. But so, but so, so but you hadn't thought of her until until that time period right before the Broadway production started up. I had involved Bernadette. Had you you and, and Sondheim had not thought of her for the role until it actually was the moment when then you talked to her and cast her? No, not initially, no. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a process. I don't, and I've just said that, but it's a process. It's not like we set out and go, oh, you know, let's get so-and-so. You know, yeah. we just write the characters and then we start thinking about, and also... Well, Steve, you know, wrote George to be a baritone when we did uh, Sunday, you know, and uh, so, you know, that was like a real shift, but we had just begun the process. Mm. And so when Mandy did that workshop, he changed all the keys and everything to suit his voice. So, And, and because, I mean, just it, it, the witch also seems so molded on Bernadette. It's hard, it's hard to imagine her being not from the beginning kind of part of the oh, yeah well you know it was a hard part and she made it her own you know yeah. one does um but no it wasn't molded on anybody <laughs> all, you know all that it was molded in steve sondheim's head yeah. well maybe <laughs> and on, the, on the page and uh you know you don't he doesn't write the witch because bernadette's playing it he no. writes the witch because it's how he's heard yeah. it. and so yeah. Well, well, she certainly made it her own. And um, uh, I guess I'm curious how much you were involved in the, then during the run of the original, like in terms of, um, because I know you filmed the, the American Playhouse broadcast late in the run, right? That was like uh, over a year after it opened, I believe. Oh yeah, I, I must've been, yeah, at least, right. And, and, and like with Sunday, Bernadette and some of the other leads had already left and then came back just for the for the filming. You know more about this than I. <laughs> I have no idea. Not well, not enough. I need you to write another book of uh, you know the full oral history. You should mention it because I've been working on that and writing about Into the Woods. But you know, Into the Woods Sunday was so embedded in my memory because it was such a. I was such a newbie and, mm. uh, you know, it, every moment was a moment as somebody might have written. <laughs> By the time we got to uh, Into the Woods, it was um, just a different, a different vibe. And uh, so my memory of it is what I have to do actually for my own writing, I have to go, my stuff is in a library and I have to go to the library and look at it all. I should, I, if, if I, I, I'm more, uh, 
focused on saving things now than I was in those days. But Steve, on the other hand, saved everything. So when I have a chance to go through both of our archives, I'll have a, I, I'll call you then. I'll be very much looking forward to it. I have a feeling it won't be before your podcast. Well, that's okay. My interest will not die with the completion of this project. Well, you can read the book then. I'll send you I the book. I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, I'm I'm so grateful for your time. I mean, this is really uh, invaluable, and I know that people will appreciate hearing it. Well, you're very persuasive, so there you go. <laughs> Real well, lovely. Good luck with it, and thanks for your interest in it. And Thank uh, you nice so to much. Meet. Take care. Yeah, you Bye-bye. too. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Giants in the Sky, how Sondheim and Lapine went into the woods on the Broadway Podcast Network. Check out episode two, where I chat with Chip Zion, the original baker. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.